Hello. Welcome to the podcast. How are you, Allie? Great. How are you? I'm good. Good. Are you excited? I am. This is our third guest. Third guest. Wow. We're very PhD glad you're here student, with us. Yeah. Leon Bates here at Wayne State. That's right. It's very That's exciting. Cool. So you guys were in a... Th- first grad student. Oh, he is our first grad student. First wow. Grad student. First really? grad student. Yeah. yeah. We had an archivist, a professor, and you're our first graduate yeah, first student. Grad I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I think it's great. You should feel flattered that of all the ones we could have picked, we wanted you to be first. Oh, okay. I didn't know if it was, you know, everyone else had turned you down. <laughs> okay. I don't think we've asked a single person who's like, no, I don't want to be a part of your podcast. Yeah. Okay. I don't think anyone like, said Everyone's no. been like, oh my God, that's so cool. Can, like, do you, do you want to have me on there? Like, without asking, can I be on your podcast? Right. Oh, okay. And Ray and I are like, we'll see. Yeah. We, <laughs> <laughs> this is extra on top of school and work that's and right. internships and anything else that we might do in This life. is our love project. Yeah. Oh, okay. so. Sounds we, like fun. Yeah. It takes a lot of work, though. Thanks for editing that episode, by the way. It was delightful. I used to edit all the episodes for my other podcast. So... I was happy not to have I'm to. I'm a team edit one. player. I didn't even review it to see how your editing sounded. I just put it up. I spent like three hours doing it, so. <laughs> yeah, it usually takes me. If a podcast is about an hour, I like an hour long podcast so that someone can sit and listen to it while they're working or doing whatever they cleaning the house. I don't know, and um, it usually takes me two hours to edit because you're stopping and you're like, do I want to leave that in there? Yeah. I want, and then you have to listen. You have to listen to it as you go. So. Yeah. Yeah, three hours. You'll you'll get there. Well, it was mostly because um, the software that I usually use to edit things is like it's supposed to be video and audio, and it was fighting me to just do audio. So oh. then I had to download Audacity oh. and then wait for Audacity to install. So it the listening part probably only took like two hours, but it was because I had to like do yeah. The process. I was happy though because I wasn't sure if it would transfer from my pro my program to any program you were using, and mm-hmm. it worked well. But that's not what we're here to talk about. That's not. We're here to talk with Leon about his project. And his life. Yeah, and just everything. That's right. <laughs> All right, well, where do we start? All right, where are you from slash where did you grow up? Start at the beginning. Whoa. <laughs> I am actually from Indianapolis and grew up in Indianapolis. I was born at Fort Harrison, Indiana, which is just outside of Indianapolis. Well, Indianapolis has grown to it now. So I'm an Army brat. Oh. Um, and then you served too, right? Uh, yep. I went off and joined and stayed uh, three years in the regular army and another six in the reserves. Wow. So it's it's really, so you were born and raised in Indianapolis, so you were stationed there, like your father my, was stationed there the whole time? No, my father actually was uh, stationed several places, but at the time he and my mother got married, uh, my parents grew up in Indianapolis, and then he joined the army, and then they got married, and then he went off someplace. I mean, he didn't go to Europe, but he was here in the United States. Got transferred to Indianapolis. And by the time I was born, uh, since they were in the service, I could be born in the military hospital. So Indianapolis just happened to have a post. That's where I was born. And he was going to go to Germany. Um, and my brother was an infant, but he was born premature and the army wouldn't let my mother travel with him mm. until he was at least a year old because he was a preemie. So Back in those days, they really got excited about things like that. So my dad went to Germany for two years, and uh, we stayed here. And then he did come home because in that process, my sister came along. (laughs) So he came home for visits, but then he went back, and he stayed in Germany for two years, and then came back, and then 
my parents were kids when they got married. They got divorced before I started school. And uh, he eventually moved to California where he lives now. Wow. He's been in Los Angeles for 40 plus years now. He's Smoking decided, up the sun. Yeah, he's decided he hates the weather. He yeah. so, so, no. <laughs> probably arrived at the right time in Los Angeles. So. Yeah. Before it got crazy. Yeah. Back when housing was affordable. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. So, yes, that's where I'm from, Indianapolis. Uh, I've lived there most of my life. I, I've been here in Detroit now. It's my third year. I live in an apartment, and my wife is still in Indianapolis, so I go back and forth home. And my youngest is a senior at Fordham University, so she'll be graduating this spring. Oh, good for her. Yeah, so. Congratulations. We didn't have young kids when I got into this, so it was a little bit easier to do. Yeah. Um, then it's been two years in Louisville, kids. Kentucky before I came here. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. What I were you doing down there? Going to University of Louisville. Oh, okay. And I'm, I'm truly a non-traditional student. I graduated from IUPUI in 2013. Yeah. So I did my undergrad. Didn't you do some stuff in Chicago, too? Or? No. Indianapolis, Just Louisville, Indianapolis. and now here. Okay. Um, it's a... Strange feeling. It's very different to be in college at the same time your kids are. Mm. Because I graduated from the University of Louisville the same summer my son graduated from Ball State. Oh, wow. So it's like, this is different. You know, you're in school at the same time your kids are. I've run across someone here. They were both undergrads, and it was a father and son, and they were in the class together. And I was like, that's got to be, it could be nice, but it could also be hard and strange. And I think they also made mention that their mom, the mother in the family, had also was also a student or had just finished. So they would all been in school together. And but that's what you kind of find at a school like Wayne. You just find all different types of people. It's you know, there's no such thing I think as a traditional student at a school like this. Well, I think I'm about the most non-traditional I've run across yet. <laughs> and it was not in my game plan. If anyone had asked me or suggested to me years ago that I'd be doing this at this point in my life, I'd have told them that out of their ever-loving blank mind. There's <laughs> just no way. And um, we were talking before we started recording, and I was telling Allie that if the economy hadn't crashed in 2007, I would yeah. still be doing what I was doing then. I had my own company. And yeah. There were... Ten employees plus myself, and I'd still be doing it. I was an electrician and loved it. Hmm. And there came that day when it's like, okay, I have to find something else to do. And it took a year and a half, two years to really get myself into the position to go back to school, and I didn't want to do it. And I finally went back, went to IEPUI because I started out at IEPUI years ago. And you two have seen the movie ET. Yeah. You know how it starts out, and E.T. takes off running across the field screaming with his arms up. Ah, that was me leaving out IEPUI. <laughs> it was an insane asylum. The lunatics were actually running the asylum. <laughs> and I left, couldn't stand it, and then worked as an electrician and dearly loved it. And eventually started my own company. And I did that for 11, almost 12 years before the economy crashed. And I decided to, if I'm going to go back to school, do something different. Don't go into engineering. Go find something else to do. Do something that you like. And I enjoyed history when I was in high school, so okay. That's where I went back. Went walking into IEPUI, did not know that you applied for school online and all those kind of things. I just stormed in the door one day and told them what I wanted. Well, you have to do it online. Really? How do you do that? 
<laughs> told me, and then I went home and I did it. And got the letter a few weeks later saying that I had been accepted, and then I had to go in to meet a advisor. And he started telling me about, you know, what kind of programs they offered, and on and on. I said, no, I want to do a history major. Was this a bachelor's you were going That's for? That's my bachelor's degree. Yeah, okay. And uh, yet they were telling me about all the other general classes and trying to tell me about all the things that are open to me. I already know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a history degree, and I want to do it in U.S. history. I'm not interested in Europe or, you know, the Middle East or anything else. I'm going to do U.S. history. I had enough of the Magna Carta and all that the first time around in high school. <laughs> so they sent me over to the history department. I talked to the professor over there, and I told him the same thing. I didn't know he was a European specialist. I, he did uh, medieval studies. So I told him, I am not interested in that period. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and I guess he, in some ways, thought he would find out what I was really made of. He threw me into a 300-level history class, my first class. And that I was my first guy. class in undergrad, too. Really? Yeah. Mine was, first one was the uh, U.S. history and was the Civil War and Reconstruction. I got a B-plus out of it. My first class out of the box. Then later on, I started telling me, well, you got to go back to these 100-level courses. For what? I can already do those. <laughs> I didn't know how any of this worked. And uh, finally, someone got a hold of me and explained to me how things worked. And then I got lucky. Um, an older professor, she's passed away a couple years ago cornered me one day leaving class and what are you going to do when you graduate you know, what are your plans Yeah, I don't know I haven't thought about that have you thought about grad school what's grad school it's like oh, oh we need to have a long talk with you and uh, <laughs> she sent me to see the head of the Africana Studies program which I didn't even know they had one I didn't know what that was and he convinced me to take courses in that program, so I ended up with a double major, one in Africana Studies and one in U.S. History. And Those go well together. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And he and the other professor suggest I go to grad school and then push me down that path to do this, which it wasn't much of a push. It was just more like, there's a path. Take it. Mm. And I have not regretted it. It's It's been enjoyable. It's been a lot of work. Uh, I'm truly fortunate that my wife understands and was behind me doing this probably her and my dad pushed me into it but most people could not do five years living apart um but you'd been you've been married for a long time before oh, you yeah, know, yeah we've been married close to 30 years now our son is 25 so she's like this is vacation leon can come and go as he pleases but i don't have to deal with him he's off at school you know <laughs> Um, we talked about it, and one of the things I told her is that I can remember when my parents when were doing this, and my dad was in the Army, and they did a lot of letter writing. Mm-hmm. And we have cell phones. So yeah. Rather than write letters, you know, it's usually a morning phone call. My wife is a morning person, so I get the phone call, you know, wake up, get up, do this, that, and the other. But it's almost every day, you know, yeah. that I get a phone call in the yeah. morning. So that's how we've managed to work it out. And then it's only a, a four-hour drive back to Indianapolis, so... I've been able to go home on weekends a lot when I wanted to. Yeah. So about once, twice a month I would go home. But this semester with doing the um, comp exams, I've done more of that in Indianapolis than here, so I've spent more time there this semester. Okay. So my fifth year has kind of led up on that. And, you know, like I said, my kids were in school, and my youngest one is graduating. And it was an adjustment for her. She was in high school when I went off to University of Louisville. Did you get a master's at Louisville? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, we got a master's in Pan-African Studies there and then came here. Okay. Interesting. Because I'm... It's interesting when you look at um, professors' profiles, and most of them have bachelors, and then maybe they worked a little bit or they didn't, and they went straight through, but they're like masters and PhD. At least it used to look like they all came from the same, the same place because you got your masters as you did your PhD, and then you got your PhD. But I'm finding a lot more people have a master's program or some other program from a different school in between. PhD. There is a pro and con to that. Yeah. If you do your PhD and master's in the same school, it's simpler. I won't say it's any easier, but it's simpler because the rules that apply to the classes and how they work and right. how they tie the master's and the PhD together, they're, they're simpler and they, they mesh together better. If you come from a different school, there's just more complications you have to work through. It can be mm. done. A lot of people can do it. Um, in my case, I went to a history-focused Pan-African Studies program, which is a, well, they call that a non, uh, I've forgotten the term, but it's not like a history program which is focused strictly on history. We had classes that came from anthropology, history, um, sociology, and, mm-hmm. uh, and art. Yeah, and, and cultural and studies art, and fine, humanities. Fine and, arts, um, yeah. like art lit- history. Art history and literature. Those two were roped together into fine arts. And I just didn't do the fine arts when I wasn't interested. I have no talent when it comes to matching colors. My daughter has a lot of fun saying, You can't match colors. Okay, well, fine. <laughs> you know, so I wear animals. But um, most of mine was history focused. And I can say that program was, for me, probably a good thing because. It lets you explore some of the other fields in interdisciplinary. Learning. Interdisciplinary. That's what I'm I looking for. I knew I'd for. get it. Interdisciplinary. Um, and it, it allowed me to learn and, and focus on a few other things I probably wouldn't if I had gone straight to a master, uh, a master's straight history master program, and then done the masters in histories in the same school, masters and PhD in the same school. Um, that would have been simpler, but I think I'm probably better off if I did it this way. So when how did did your advisor at your um, undergraduate help you find that program, or did you find it on your own or um, some of both? They had told us just like here you know you applied to several different schools and I did and I applied there and got on like everybody on like the waiting list we switched stuff in they okay they didn't reject it and I was standing in the kitchen one. Thursday afternoon, and the phone rang, mm-hmm. and the University of Louisville called and asked if I was still interested. Yes, would you like to start this fall? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, when are you talking about? This is July, and classes started in August. Yeah, so I had about four weeks to get organized and get to Louisville, Kentucky. Oh my gosh! You know, to find a place to stay, everything place to live. In yeah, about four weeks. Someone had dropped out, and they had an opening. And I later found out when what had happened. The person that dropped out left it with an opening, and rather than give the financing back to the university, the department said, no, we'll find someone else. Yeah. So they called me awesome. and wanted to know if I wanted to do it. And I had a week to decide. This was like I said on a Thursday. They said, well, we need to know by Wednesday of next week you know, what your decision is. Wow. So I hung the phone up. My wife was sitting there in the kitchen listening to this. And then she made a decision, you're going to the University of Louisville because it was funded. Yeah. 
She said it comes with the school said it comes with a complete package and you'll get um, all your classes will be uh, paid for and you'll get a stipend to live on. Nice. Yeah. That's rare for a master's program. Yeah. And my wife said, well, you're going to University of Louisville. And wait a minute, hold it. I didn't say I wanted to go there. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it's funded just where you're going. And that's how I ended up at University of Louisville. So she's going to get a big dedication in any books that you write, right? <laughs> she's not just going to get an acknowledgement. The book will be dedicated yeah. to her. Yeah, exactly. They have to be, all of them, forever. <laughs> yeah. So then when I went to apply to PhD programs, it was a little bit more complicated, and then funding became an issue, and also, like, I just didn't want to go to the West Coast or to the East Coast and have to like, okay, you're going to be here until holiday time or something like that, so I was looking around trying to find one. Yeah, closer and to home. Yeah, they were a little bit slower responding back, you know, how the process was going. And then I got heard from uh, Wayne State, are you interested still? Yes. And, you know, we traded some emails back and forth, and I was just wrapping up submitting my thesis mm. and made that quick decision to leave there in June and be here in August. Wow. That's awesome. We're happy you're here. I like taking classes with Leanne. I've had a couple. Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> you have any other questions, Allie? You come with prepared questions. I'm putting you on the spot now. Ah, okay. Um, I guess then we'll just segue into your dissertation. Because, like, as the archivist in me always wants to know, how did you come across this one little nugget of information and then decide to throw away your sanity for the next couple of years by pursuing this nugget of information? Has um, it changed since our first class? What's no. Your... When, when I got here, I had three ideas okay. uh, for dissertation. And I put those in my uh, application when I sent them here. And Dr. Fowl read it because I was talking to her in the uh, meeting one day over there in the FAB. And she says, I think your dissertation on the police officer would be just perfect. Now, my grandfather was one of my choices. And then she said, you know, the politics of that can be a, a lot of trouble. Yeah. For dissertation, don't do that. And then the other one... Um, which is the guy that I did the uh, did the historical marker for? I don't think there's enough to, to actually do a complete dissertation, but he is part of the other dissertation I want to write, so he would be like a chapter in it. So those are my three options, and she says I think you ought to do the police officers or the police department. Really, damn, she read the paperwork. Okay, so. Uh, I stumbled into that quite by accident years before I decided to even go back to school. I was reading the Sunday paper, and there was an article, and the Indianapolis paper used to have this thing called uh, Retro Indy. And they would talk about stories from years ago. Mm -hmm. And this one was about a police officer who was killed in the alley behind where we live. I was like, hmm, that's curious. It's 1922. And there was this big write-up about it, and they they were putting a headstone in for him at, on his grave because he didn't have a headstone. Mm. So I read all this article, and then um, about six months later, well, they were collecting the money. Six months later, they put the headstone up. And by this time, I guess a lot of people read the article, and the police department did a complete um, memorial service there at the cemetery. Oh, yeah, with the salute and everything. Yes, with everything. I mean, they, the whole thing. This was in November, so it's cold, and they were out there doing this. And... Uh, 
it ran in the paper, Sunday paper again, and I read it. And then the curiosity, you know, is what got me. Was I think it's that when I realized, wait a minute, hold it, damn, that's behind where we live at. So curiosity got me. I went down to the library to pull the old newspapers and read the old newspapers and see what it said. And I'm sitting there going through the microfilm, and there's not much to read, but I could feel myself getting angry while I was reading the microfilm reader. And then something just caught me and says, wait a minute, hold it, time out. You know better than this. Now, you've read enough about the Ku Klux Klan, the 1920s, and all those kind of things. You, you know better, so just calm the hell down and read. And I did. And that was how I got started into all of this. And one of those little short articles said that he had passed away. He was shot in November, and he died back up. He was shot in June and died in November. Hmm. And there was this little short article about he had died at Ward Sanitarium. And I later met some police officers, and one of them had wrote a book about Indianapolis police officers. And I asked him, I said, what's Ward Sanitarium? And he said, oh, it's just some nursing home, I guess. Hmm. And I just like, that just wasn't good enough for me. So I just wanted to know more about where this guy died. And I knew that anytime a public servant, like a policeman or fireman, got hurt, they took him to the city hospital. Yeah. And that's just standard practice. And it made sense the city could control the cost by doing that. Why was he not in the city hospital? And he had been at Ward Sanitarium for months before he died. Why was he not in the city hospital? And that is how I got started on this whole process of Dr. Ward and with uh, the police department was trying to peel that onion to see what the hell was going on. And it took several years. So I had kind of started poking it before I came back to uh, school. And then I wrote a paper about the police officer as an undergrad and won an award for that one. And uh, some of the professors at first thought maybe I had made that up because several of them said they had never heard of it. And they said the only reason they believed it You turned it was in the paper with a made-up place. <laughs> well, they said the reason they had to believe it was I had all the citations. And they yeah. checked a few citations. They said, you know what? That's really true. You know, as bizarre as his paper sounds, that, this crap's true. It really <laughs> happened. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, he gets the award. Because they said that he had to be making this up. And then, of course, they fact-check some of them and says, no, he's not making it up. It really happened. So that's how I got into it, and that's how my dissertation came to be. What it's going to be is about the police department, how it started, and some of it's what's wrong with it now and that it's not something that just happened today. Like, police officers shooting unarmed people is mm -hmm. not a new phenomenon. That's right. something that's been going on for more than 100 years. It's just that we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I think, too, it's... Um it has to do with everyone's now got a video camera in their hands. And oh. so stuff happens now, and it's just that we're more aware of it. Like, this stuff has been happening forever. It's just that now we can have the evidence at, like, the snap of our finger, and we can right. it can be worldwide in a matter of and minutes. And, and certain communities that had more access to the papers and more access mm -hmm. to press um, and communities that didn't before or they had their own presses that, the larger media wasn't covering. Now they they're on the it's it's equal playing field. Yeah. If you can get something on Twitter trending, you can get something on Facebook, you, in, what, wherever it is, well, it levels the playing field. I mean, as a labor historian, that's like one of the first things you check is you check the newspapers because right. you know what happened. 
and you're going to see how the newspaper spun it to support right. the industry that's supporting the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, yeah, with everyone filming their own thing, and I send it to my followers, and my followers send it, mm-hmm. the media can't control us, what we send to each other. And that really started with the Rodney King incident when he was mm-hmm. beaten back in the yeah. 90s. And some guy who had just got a little handheld video camera. Yeah. And this is the one that had the video cassette in it. He hears the commotion, and he gets up and sees it, and he steps out on the balcony of his apartment, and he just starts, you know, clicking away yeah. with his video camera as they beat the hell out of Rodney King. And it's chilling. It's yeah, chilling. and then you start watching that, and then to actually watch the attorneys in the court try to explain away that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they really desperately tried to explain it away, and people just weren't buying it, like you were saying. We can all see it now. Everybody can see this all over the world, and the Rodney King thing went around the world. Well, yeah. it wasn't but a few years later that the handheld, not handheld, excuse me, the um, cell phones with the video cameras in them came out. So like Allie said, everyone's got a camera in their pocket. Right. And they pull it out, and they start videotaping, and it drives some police officers crazy because they don't know if they're going to get caught doing something wrong or you know say something innocuous and be in trouble for it. Or right. actually do something very terrible and be regretful, but still, you know, it's been caught on video. Yeah, now they've all, yeah. some departments have started wearing their video. They it's had the insurance. dash cams, and then yeah. now they, yeah. I well, think it's, the problem with the, um, the body cameras you're talking about yeah. is how it's interpreted. And we still have this idea that it has to be interpreted. You know, when you look at it, you can watch it and uh, give you a prime example. If you watch the Rodney King video, and uh, they're beating him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's on the ground, and they continually hit him. And they said because he wouldn't comply. Well, if you think about it for a minute, if you get hit with anything, your initial reaction is going to be to grab the area, to right. put your hand in the way to protect the area. It's not going to be to lay down and put your arms behind your back. And they keep beating you. You're not going to do it. Reflexively, you're going to try to protect yourself. Yeah. So it's an idiotic statement to say that they, you know, if you just stop moving, we'll stop beating you. Well, even a more recent one is um, that I, I don't remember what his name is, but the kid who was confronted by the Native American at the Washington um, yeah. Monument, there was so much video footage of that. And the news outlets interpreted it one way. The students all argued, no, it was this way. And so, like you were saying, and like we're saying, just having the video footage now isn't enough anymore because everybody can spin it in whatever way they in want to. Yeah. they want. Exactly. Right. And also... Sometimes you'll have you'll see these videos and they're telling the people to put their hands up or move and you've already beaten this person to the point where they're knocked out. Yeah. They can't comply with anything that you're yeah, saying. That that's the whole thing, is that like you said, you, they're either being beaten or they've been beaten, you know, and yeah. they either can't comply because they're not in a conscious enough state or they physically, you know, can't do it. So the police are gonna have to reevaluate this whole thing of, you know, you beat someone into compliance, which is what they're doing, beating them into compliance. Right. And that doesn't really make sense. But it was not being addressed until the cameras came along, and all of a sudden you have the video. And it's interesting if you can actually become close to some police officers mm. and you talk to them about it, and they'll tell you, you know, like, yeah, they, they hit him too much, you know, or they shouldn't have done that. that right. That, that, there are lots of ways to do things, but that probably wasn't the best way to do it. Yeah, the tra- it, it's when the training is so good that it kicks in properly to 
diffuse situations right. and not have that trigger finger. But when they have training, but it's not reiterated, or there's this culture of you're afraid of the people that you're supposed to be protecting, or you don't know the community that you're in because you see it as a job and not as community policing, that's not good enough. Right. Yeah, and, like, uh, I've been reading this book on, like, the cold case department of New York City. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. But like she brings it up on every episode. <laughs> well, I've been reading it for a while. <laughs> well, like, something they say is, like, is uh, TV really hurt being a police officer? Because now everybody asks for their lawyer immediately instead of just asking a couple of questions. Like, you, they're like, we can't even talk to witnesses anymore who may not have done anything wrong, who may not have anything to do with this crime. And especially because they're cold cases, yeah. They're like they're like it impedes our investigation like all the time and all we want is to find out who killed this person. Mm. They're in some ways they're correct. Um, and it's fascinating if you actually start reading into this like I've done over the last few years, you start to see that there are two sides of that coin. Mm-hmm. And one is that people are more reluctant to talk to the police and there's a good reason for that. Yeah. But on the flip side of it, there are times when our apprehension to talk to the police hinders what they're doing. And, you know, like I said, there's two sides of the coin, and you have to be very aware of it. And I think sometimes people who work in the uh, in policing tend to forget or not understand that. And what I'm getting at is, like, I worked in the electrical field for, you know, like I said, more than almost 30 years. It was not uncommon for me and guys, you know, my generation to work on energized circuits and not think anything of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about 480 volt circuit. Um, it'll hurt you. But if you've done it enough, you know how to do it, and it's not going to you know, bother you. I always tell, especially apprentices starting out, turn it off. Don't do what you see me doing. Yeah. You know, don't yeah. do that. Turn it off. Do not do that. But if you work in that field, you start to know, you know, what the parameters are, you know, what you can and cannot get away with. And policing is the same way. And I think that at some point they forget that, yes, they're the professional, but they're dealing with people who are not. Right. And once people have seen a couple cases where talking to the police went bad or uh, there is a PBS special you can go to uh, their website and they talk about false confessions. Yeah, there's Mm -hmm. a fine Mm -hmm. line between coercion and... Willingly giving testimony. Well, and some of these people willingly talk to the police, but the police talked them into a confession right. that later proved to be, you know, false. Yep. But, and people say, well, how could you do that? You know, I remember having that conversation with my son, and I said, if you're in a position or in a room with several people that you perceive to be an authority, and they start telling you things and start, you know, asking you questions, it's not hard to see how they could actually... Right. And maybe in your past you have done something wrong or you're concerned that that's going to come up even if it's not related. Um, In my discussions with attorneys and when I was in paralegal school, this is not legal advice. I'm not authorized to give legal advice. However, uh, if you're ever picked up by the police, you shouldn't talk. Like that's your guaranteed number one way to stay safe and, you know, Yes, it can if you're like just a witness, but if you if you're picked up and you're brought into an interrogation room, yeah. don't talk to the police <coughs> without a lawyer. No one should. Well, Even if you're the most innocent person and you were fifty miles away. And I think 
that this I wouldn't is talk sort of, and maybe this is building on what, you know, Leon's going to argue in his dissertation, is that maybe there just needs to be a gigantic revolution within law enforcement at all. Like lawyers, if, you're, if you, your client is innocent and that's protected by lawyer, you know, client confidentiality, yeah. encourage your client to help solve this murder. I mean, do you really want to help a murderer go out there because you're so busy worried about that lipstick you stole when you were 13? Like, Yeah, that's an extreme case, but right. I'm thinking about more communities that often get picked up by the right, police right. every other day. But that's what I'm saying, though, too, is then at the same token, the police, to, there just needs to be a gigantic revolution where it's like police need to realize that, you know, stop bullying people. Yeah. And if you start the change, people will respond. Yeah, they yeah they find when the police are involved in the community and mm-hmm. the people know who they are and yeah that that's been proven several times. They're more likely to come they, forward right. with information if they change their tactics and become right. more human. Yeah, people like you said, Allie, will respond. Um, the biggest problem when you talk about reform that what I see after going through a lot of this is that it really needs to start with the courts. And what I'm getting at is that when a police officer does do something wrong and you go to court, the court tends to side with the police officer, mm-hmm. right. give them the benefit of the doubt. On one hand, I understand that. On the other hand, you can't continually do that because right. then people not only lose faith with the police, they lose faith with the courts mm-hmm. because right. why go through this? If I come down here, all you're going to do you know, is say, well, you, know, you should have done what the police officer told you to. I tried to do what he told me to. I couldn't. Right. Yeah. And it's a short-sightedness of the court because on the one hand, they want to look like law and order should be respected and we want to side with police because we want to support police and we need policing and all that kind of stuff. But in the long run, if you keep doing that and that they've got a pl- especially police officers that find they can get away with things and more and more and more and then they're no, they're no longer police officers. There's a fine line between them and the criminals. Well, one thing that really doesn't get talked about with the courts. And what they do is the police are in kind of a unique position. They're doing a job that no one else wants to do. The the, the attorneys, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, and the judge do not want to go out in the streets and deal with the people and, you know, break up the problem and and possibly roll around in the street fighting these people and bringing them into court. Yeah, get shot themselves, killed, whatever. so, So they don't want to do that job for lots of reasons. Like you said, they're afraid of being shot or whatever. So the police are the ones who do that dirty work that they don't want to do, so they give them a lot of free reign. Um, It's only when the case becomes truly, um, truly problematic and to the point where you can't ignore it and one of them you were just talking about, you know, their rights and they'll talk to a lawyer. Well, that comes back from a 1966 case with Miranda versus Arizona, mm-hmm. where Ernesto Miranda confessed to a crime yeah. and he didn't know that he didn't have to talk to the police. Right. So now the police are required to tell you, you don't have to talk to me. But they also, the courts have said the police can lie to people. It's yeah. okay. So... You have this gray area now where if you're a good citizen, you'll tell the police what you know. Beware of the police because they're not necessarily your friend. Uh, if you are suspected, they have to tell you that, you know, you have rights and you have to talk to us. On the other hand, back like I said, you're a good citizen, you ought to talk to me. But if talking to me could land you in jail, 
So people are afraid because people have done false confessions. and It's been proven that they were innocent, but they were convinced by the police, oh, no, to confess. One of the biggest ones a lot of people will remember, and you two are too young, but the Central Park Five. Yeah. Those five kids admitted to beating and raping that woman. Mm-hmm. And then later it was all proven that right. they were all teenagers. They were in the room with with the police, without their parents, without yeah, lawyers at first. Teenagers and, and parents. Yeah. And they convinced them to sign these things. So part of it was, well, if you just sign this, you can go home. Mm-hmm. You know, if you sign this, it'll all be over, you can go home. Okay, well, they signed it, and then they handcuffed them, hauled them to a jail cell. You said I could go home. <laughs> well, I lied to you. Right. Let's not forget Donald Trump had a wonderful smear campaign against those young boys. Oh, he ran a full-page ad that they should bring back the death penalty for Horrible. Them. Horrible. Yes. Central Park Five was... And that's just one, one of the more recent yeah. ones that people you know, will yeah. gravitate to. But there are lots of others out there. So there have been problems. Like, And one of the things I think we lose sight of and police don't even understand is why they're there to start with. And the police are there because their job is social control. That's all it is. Yeah. It's social control. Policing was started in London in 1829. And it was because they were having so much trouble there with people drinking and brawling in the streets, you know, prostitution on the street, things that people didn't want to see going on that were not necessarily at the time seen as crimes. They later had to create laws to stop it. Then you had to find someone to go out and police it because you have the sheriff is a court officer. His job is to enforce the laws, enforce the orders of the court, and also to enforce the laws of the state. When the laws of the state are kind of limited, the other laws, the public intoxication, fighting, things like that, those are not state laws. Those are local infractions. Right. So a lot of people don't realize that. So the police are there to stop all of the brawling and drinking and all these other kind of things. The committing homicides or murder, you maybe have, like in Indianapolis last year, I think they had 89 or... 90 homicides for the year, which is a lot of people on one hand. On the other hand, that's a small number of what you do. That's a small part of it. The bigger uh, uh, interaction with the police department in that city is going to be traffic tickets, mm-hmm. traffic accidents, right. home burglaries, theft from a vehicle. There's a lot more of those kind of crimes. Those are all social things. I mean, theft is a crime, but I mean, you know, that's a social problem. That's not, you know, a violent crime where you get one-on-one. Right. And that's what the police are set up to do. They get roped into doing a lot of other things and give them a little bit of a break. You know, they're not necess- they're human beings like everybody else, and watching this go on and dealing with this can be trying for them as well as it is for us. And if you look at my research, and I start off in the 1870s and just come up to the 1920s, they were starting to see those kind of problems then, and they were still trying to figure out how to deal with it. And they have not figured out yet today how to deal with these problems. Right. And then when you add questions about race and gender and different oh, cultures man. into the mix, especially in a country like the United States with complicated histories related to those things, and those and positions of power usually are held by white men, such as police officers, that adds a whole other element. Yes, exactly. It becomes far more complicated to try and deal with it. And that is the challenge that we face is how do we deal with all of these day-to-day social interactions, people having their minor conflicts or minor problems, 
versus, you know, the larger scale problems? How do we deal with that? You know, how, how much does it cost to police a community? Right. Do you need a police department? Um, what should they do? How yeah, should we, they do it? Our police department was, in my city, was founded in the 1950s. So our community didn't grow to be large enough to need its own police force until right before it became a city. Right. In, in the United States, that normally that happened. Weird? Frontier justice. <laughs> in, but, but I think that, like, there's a cultural element of frontier justice as well. Like, oh, that, that's another whole discussion. But see? We're going to have, you, like, five podcasts out of this one. What, what you find in, uh, in, well, let me back up. Policing comes to the United States in 1832 through Boston and then spreads out. Indianapolis gets its police department in 1857. 1854, then they took it apart and they created a new police department in 1857 that we still see today. Um, and it was all done for social control. And the majority of the work they were trying to do then in the 1850s was not trying to control African Americans. It was trying to control Germans and Irish. Mm-hmm. Starn uh, Irish. <laughs> The Irish and Germans that came to the Midwest came off the East Coast, and Boston pretty much realized that they had a problem with all the immigrants coming in and dealing with them and all of their different, um, the different cultures and, and how they did things. And once you started mixing German languages in and Gaelic languages in, now you got them speaking different languages, different cultures, different customs. It was becoming very complicated. And there was a sheriff and a few deputies, and they couldn't control it. And the sheriff says, well, you know what? Dealing with bar fights is not on my list of things to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have to, you know, that to do. And that's kind of what your community was dealing with. If you had a problem, you called up the, uh, the sheriff, yeah. and he sent a deputy out. And then it grew from that to small communities either had a deputy who lived in the community right. or they had a town marshal who was a part-time deputy. Yeah. And eventually, communities started to grow to the point of where they needed someone else. And in the 1950s, that's when they decided to start a police department where you live. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they pulled from lo- other communities. We had broken off from a large another city. And then... What city? Farmington Hills. Thank you. And then we um, had, you know, pulled from them. In the 1920s, we started our own fire department because it wasn't enough we had enough housing and places that could catch that, on fire. That was driven that, by fear. Right, that we couldn't pull fast enough from right. the other community. But as far as policing went, I think that they, we still fell under their umbrella for a long time. And then one of the reasons that was, was that you take small communities and they may have one or two drinking establishments. Yeah. But the bigger drinking establishments were in Detroit or closer into Detroit. So... Yeah, the People, problems got... Yeah, they, they would go into Detroit and drink and then, you know, fight and all these kind of things, and they would go back to the small communities and, you know, just go back to being a normal person. And on Friday or Saturday night, they go back in, you know, to these... Bigger areas, ...watering holes, yeah. and it, this would repeat itself. And eventually, that grew out to the smaller communities. In Indianapolis, what Indianapolis sits in Marion County, and what happened there was before the police department was created in the 19 in the 1850s the sheriff patrolled the county and a lot of the different little small communities had a marshal mm. who was in that um, that community they would lock people up on Friday and Saturday night in their jail and then the sheriff every Monday morning sent wagons out 
like in a, in a spoke type pattern to all the different parts of the county, and they'd load them up and they'd bring back all the people who were locked up for the weekend to the city, to Indianapolis, because that's where the county court was. Right. And then they would all have to go before the judge and then get fined or a case, you know, get put on the docket, whatever. And then they had to walk back. You could get a ride in the sheriff wagon to um, to the to downtown because they'd come pick you up first thing Monday morning and they'd ride all over creation and eventually by sometime Monday afternoon they'd wind up back downtown and they'd unload the wagons and then you go before the judge and either you'd be fined or they'd set you a court date and then like one that I deal with a lot was Broad Ripple. Broad Ripple is six and a half, almost seven miles from downtown. So you'd have to walk that seven miles back because there was no public transportation in those days. And this was a common thing. So that's another reason not to, you know, run afoul of the law, because if they locked you up, they would take you to jail. But you had to get back on your own. Now, maybe if you had some friends friends or relatives that you kind of felt sorry for you, they would, you know, go down to the courthouse and pick you up. So you didn't have to walk back. You have to ride double on a horse or they'd have a wagon and you could ride in that wagon. But a lot of people, a lot of people had to walk home after it was over with. So let's circle back to um, Lieutenant Ward and the monument that you got, Mm -hmm. that you're putting in. So let's talk about that. Okay. So he, tell us about him and then the process of writing the application for the monument. Where do you want to start? Well, tell us who he is for our listeners. Joseph Ward... um, was born in 1872, died in 1956. He served in the First World War as a doctor in, with the 92nd Infantry Division. And during the uh, war, when World War I started, the United States was not ready. So they had to create almost everything, including a medical corps. And the Army was segregated at the time. So the 92nd and 93rd Divisions were both all-black divisions. They needed doctors, dentists, you name it, everything you can imagine to put in this unit. Um, There were white generals who were in charge of both of them, and there were white officers, but there were a lot of black officers as well. So the Army, for the first and only time, created what they called the uh, Medical Officer Training Camp hyphen color which it was designed to bring civilian doctors into the Army and teach them how to be Army officers and teach them how to be Army doctors. And there were, I think, 118 who volunteered and 104 survived. They got through training. And that 104 was deployed to to France. And Dr. Ward was one of the 104. And he was the oldest of the group at 45. None of the doctors were were drafted. They were all volunteers. But uh, he was the oldest volunteer of the group. And they noticed that he had leadership skills when he was in the uh, medical training camp. And one of the doctors, one of the doctors who was an Army officer there at the time, recommended his promotion and said that he would make a good leader. And by the time he leaves, that was in Camp Des Moines, Ohio, By the time he leaves there and goes to Camp Shelby, Ohio, for some additional training and then on to Fort Dix, New Jersey, to go overseas, he's promoted from uh, lieutenant to captain. And then he gets to France, and uh, while he's there, he's promoted to major. And then he is put in charge of 
a field hospital, which is a new concept for the Army, the way they were running them. And he was the first African-American to be a, uh, to command a field hospital. Wow. And the war ends, and they're late leaving France because all the guys who could walk are sent back to the, and they left a town called Brest, which is on the uh, coast, Mm -hmm. where there's a port. So they're sent back to Brest to the port, and they're sent back. Well, the support personnel, the doctors, the nurses, and, and so forth, they're some of the last ones to leave because you have guys who are injured who can't walk. Right. Or we don't have a way to transport them. They're too sick to be put in a vehicle and driven. So they're a few weeks behind them. And eventually, they get back to Brest with a lot of injured people. They're put on a boat and sent back. And my daughter was poking around on Amazon and found an actual manifest of the ship he was on when he came back. Wow. And there were, I think, 3,500 guys on this ship, and one of them died at sea. Huh. That he, didn't, he was injured, but he didn't make the trip back. So I'm just guessing there's no record to indicate this right now. I haven't dug into it deep enough. But I'm just guessing he was buried at sea mm, because yeah. there was the issues with disease right. and all those kind of problems. So they probably buried that man at sea. The others all got back, and then... They were taken to uh, Camp Upton, New York. And at Camp Upton, they were still treating men and getting them uh, well enough to go home. So the war ends in November, and they arrive at Camp Upton. It's probably February when they get to Camp Upton. And while he's there at Camp Upton, uh, Madam Walker, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. C.J. Walker? Yeah. Dr. Ward had been her medical doctor when she came to Indianapolis, so he knew her. She got sick in St. Louis, and um, she had had trouble with high blood pressure and things like that for years. She got sick, and they put her on a train and brought her from St. Louis back to New York. And then someone notified him, not sure how that happened, but he was notified that they were bringing her back. And he got a leave from the Army to go to check on her. Interesting. And she lived in Irvington, New York, which was just a... a, uh, Subway and, and uh, commuter train right away. I mean, it took maybe two hours to get there from where he was. So long story short, they, they, he, he meets them at the train station downtown, and then they take the train north to Irvington where, uh, where they take her to her house, and she survives three or four more days before she passes away. So mm. he's at her bedside when she dies. Wow. Um, so you, you wrote about him in a class. Mm-hmm. It was that first class that we took, right? The methods class? Or you'd, you'd written about him before? I'd written about him before, but when we were in that class, I rewrote it to uh, meet the uh, requirements that Dr. Newman had us doing for that uh, application. Yeah. So I rewrote the paper again and then uh, filled out all the paperwork that she had us do for that uh, simulated grant. Right. And I got the bright idea when the class was over that I was going to do a historical marker. I mean, there's not a lot of historical markers in Indiana for African-Americans. Like, you know, okay, why not? Yeah. You know, I've got nothing to lose. I didn't think it was going to work, but I think, why not? So I took what Dr. Newman had us do and just reapplied it to that application. I got the application, filled it out, and then submitted it, and then I did one extra step. I contacted them and said, I submitted an application. I just want to know, you know what you guys think of it, and do you have enough information or do I need to supply more information? Yeah. And they asked for some clarification, you know, some other documentation of the things I had said, which was easy enough to get. So I went back to the archives, got some more things. 
and sent it in, and they said, well, we'll let you know. And a few weeks later, I got a letter in the mail saying that, well, not in the mail, they emailed the letter to me, that it had been approved, which was kind of a shocker. I thought I'd have to resubmit, you know. Yeah. Normally with grant proposals, especially city things, you might have to submit a couple years in a row before. Congratulations. That's, That's exactly so what I thought was going to happen was I was going to get told, no, it did, not this time, you know, but submit it again, you know. Change this. You, you know, know it's, such this. A, it's such a great story, though, and it's one that's been forgotten for too long. So, like, I'm going to take the opposite side and think that I'm not surprised that it got approved. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But he's, he's well, a he, doctor. He's a war veteran. Yep. And he, I'm, he, I assume from it being war and sanitarium that he came back and opened a hospital. He actually opened it. Um, Before he left? Yes. Okay. He, he, um, he graduated from medical school in... 1897, I think it was, in 1897, 1898, and becomes a medical doctor. And then he decides he wants to be a surgeon, and he goes to the Paul Hemus Institute in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and takes additional training there in surgery and surgery techniques. And the Paul Hemus Institute was, at the time, one of the leading places where they were uh, working with x-rays, and uh, anesthesia. And anesthesia was kind of hit and miss Mm -hmm. in the late 1890s and 1900s. They were really starting to get their arms around it at that time. And they were working with one of the first anesthesia machines. And that's what he does there. He comes back to Indianapolis. And there again, everything is segregated. He can't work in the city hospital as a doctor. It's not allowed. So how do you do surgery if you can't do it in a city hospital? So he decides to open his own um, hospital, and I would love to know why he chose to name sanitarium as opposed to hospital, but he chose sanitarium. I think you just have to look at the traditional context of a sanitarium versus a hospital because it could just be that the sanitariums were used more for treatment of illnesses, and maybe that's what he wanted to flag it as. But And maybe he just thought that members within the African-American community in Indianapolis would know that he could do it all. Oh, they knew he could do surgery. I mean, he came back and said that's what he was going to do. I mean, other doctors were all... There were probably 25 or 30 doc, African-American doctors in that city. Yeah. But well, he says they, he wanted to be a surgeon. But maybe that's something that you could so. then look at, like... I mean, this would be really difficult, but like different African-American hospitals and see how many were called hospitals and how many were called different, in, you know, words. In Indianapolis, at different times, there were four different black hospitals. Um, his was the longest lived, mm-hmm. and his was the only one called a sanitarium. All the other three were called hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them, that then there's a book about black hospitals in the United States in there were probably 150 of them across the country at one different time or another. And the majority of them were called hospitals. Um, that's just the name they put on them. I can only re- recall his actually being called a sanitarium. So I think it was a conscious choice for him. Yeah. And I'd love to know what it was. But he opens it up to do surgery, and all the other black doctors could send their patients to him, mm-hmm. and he would do their surgeries, and the doctor could come in and assist him. And they could come in and write orders, like for meals and things like that for the patient, do follow-up. Right. So it was very open to, and he yeah. would even take white patients if they wanted. Right. But none of them would come to him. But he actually got patients, I found out, that came from as far away as Richmond, Indiana, or Vincennes, or um, 
Terre Haute. And what I'm getting at is he had a radius of around 100 to 125 miles. People came to wow. him to get their surgery done. And that kind of sustained what he was doing. Yeah. He definitely so, deserves a monument. He, he starts that in 1904, I think it was. And from 1904 to 1917, in one or in multiple locations, I think he had like three locations before he entered the war, and he closed the hospital during the war. He, he shut it down. He closed the sanitarium. He goes off, and then he comes back. He reopens it, and then he has one more location. And then in 1922, excuse me, 1924, he's hired to work for the Veterans Administration. At that time, it was the Veterans Bureau mm. to run right. the VA Hospital 91, which later becomes wow. Veterans Hospital, the Tuskegee Veterans Hospital at yeah. uh, Tuskegee, Alabama. Which Veterans Hospital 91, when it opened, was a 600-bed hospital, which makes it one of the largest hospitals in the United States. Yeah. 600 beds. Now, with that said, he had the full array of services, including an isolation for people who had um, um, the chronic diseases like tuberculosis, things like that. Mm -hmm. They were in a, a separate building. They weren't just in a separate ward. They were in a separate building. So this is what's going on. But then you have to stop and remember that this is the only veterans hospital in the United States that African Americans can go to. Yeah. I don't give a damn which state you lived in. If you're an African American and you needed to go to a veterans hospital, nine chances out of ten you had to go to Tuskegee. Huh. Occasionally one in the other areas would treat someone, especially as an outpatient. Yeah. But it was rare. I found cases where one guy went from uh it's either Michigan or uh Wisconsin to a VA hospital in Kentucky. Uh -huh. And he got all the way there. They turned him away at the door. My gosh. But he went there for treatment for something. And when he got there, they turned him away at the door. So then he had to get back on the train. This is in the 1920s. Yeah. He had to get back on the train and then go back to where he came from. So when the United States government finally decided to open the, the Hospital 91 at Tuskegee, they were looking around where to put it in Tuskegee University gave them 450 acres of ground Wow! to build a hospital. They pretty much just deeded it over to the feds if they would do it. But Tuskegee did it for another reason. It was a place for them to be able to send their students, students to train. Right. Because they had a nursing school. They had other allied health fields down there. They did not have a medical school, but they had the others, and they needed a place to go. And only they would only take a handful at the county hospital there in... Uh, I think that's Macon County, Georgia. They would only take a handful of them. So they were always struggling to find a place to place their students. So if they built that hospital, they would have somewhere for their students to do their clinical training. So Tuskegee was not just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They were thinking ahead. Right. Uh, and the hospital sits right next to the Tuskegee campus. I mean, there's a fence between the two of them now. But you could walk from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And... Another reason it was that big was that they had to supply a lot of their own food. So behind the hospital was actually a um, farm. A farm, and they grew a lot of their own vegetables. They had their own cows, so they produced their own and you milk. You think you don't have butter. enough here to write a dissertation on? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think that's enough for a dissertation. There's enough for a good chapter. Um, and then, so now you're you're raising money. For the monument to help put in the um, the marker, the right. historic marker the in state Indianapolis. Of Indiana, uh, wants 
$2,950. That's a lot of money. To pay for the marker and its installation. So that does cover the production and installation. Are you okay. applying for any, like, grants? Because I'm just wondering if the grant money could be used to, like, fund this. I hadn't thought about a grant, but I've done the uh, GoFundMe, working on that now, and then recently talked to some people at the American Legion there in Indianapolis. Yeah. And they're interested in it, and they looked at me and said, you do know that uh, 2019 is our 100th anniversary. No, I hadn't thought about that. Perfect. Good fundraiser. Yes, and they're going to have the 100th anniversary convention in Indianapolis in August. Oh, wow. So it looks like it's we... It's like you got a stacked deck. Yeah, it looks like it may happen in August rather than May. Yeah. I was going to yeah. do it in May because the war ends and he comes home in May, so I thought this would be a good time to do it. Yeah. Know? Memorial Day weekend's a big weekend in Indianapolis. A lot of stuff going on. Right. So I all think you out. could do both. I don't see why you couldn't, you know, do a, like try to do like a lecture like in celebration of like Memorial Day and then do something again with the American Legion anniversary. I yeah. did. Uh, I've done two presentations, one for the American Legion and a small group of them, and then another one at the city library where there were like 100 people in the room, and they were all... Um, Novices, people didn't know anything about the military, American Legion, anything. So I had to you know, explain the whole process to them. But they were really fascinated with it. Most everyone I, I tell about it. Did you get donations? Fascinated. Uh, a few. So okay. I'm still working on it. I'm just because it's hard for people to ask from to ask strangers and people for money, especially I think academics. Yeah. Like you know, we know the process of getting money from a university, things mm -hmm. like that. But asking community members to give money can be harder. And it's 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 a skill, and it's it it's can be difficult. So it's that's a why skill, I and a lot of people, you know, including myself, didn't realize you know how that process worked. Yeah. As far as getting the marker put up, I mean, I had to learn as I went, and I didn't know the state of Indiana charged for it, and found out that at one point they did not, and then they changed the program, so now they charge for it. Mm. And I've heard rumors that it's going up for the next round. I think it's going to be thirty two hundred dollars. Oh wow! So they're raising the price of it. Well, this was an amazing conversation. I feel like we covered a lot. I f feel good about this podcast. You want to tell them where they can go to yeah, donate? Yeah, they can go uh, to GoFundMe, and if you search Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Ward, MD, Historical Marker, that's what it's titled. And he's got, Leon's got a goal of $5,000, but if, you know, every person gave a dollar, that adds up. That's what I always say. You never know. On my old podcast, we used to always choose a charity to um, give a shout out to, and sometimes they were big, like big charities, uh, like Planned Parenthood and stuff, depending on what was going on in the news. And then other times it was uh, smaller things like this and National Women's History Project. So yes, go to GoFundMe, and we will put the link on our website as well as under this podcast, and you can donate and get him on his way to his goal. Thank All right, you. thank you.